Wow. Well, thank you for coming out on a Sunday, cold Sunday afternoon to uh, talk with me and think with me about the canon, C-A-N-O-N. We're not talking about the modern warfare device, of course. We're talking about the canon of scripture, and it's, it's a privilege to be back with you this afternoon. Uh, it was, wow, it's just great to be loud. It was great to be with you this morning in, uh, in the morning services. What a privilege for me to preach God's word to you. And uh, so this is exciting. So here's what we're going to do. As uh, Tim said, I'm going to give you basically some material, some kind of hardcore theological material on the canon of Scripture, the process of assembling the canon in particular. That's what we're talking about today. There's lots of different things, of course, under the doctrine of revelation that we can cover. And if you want to go other places uh, in the Q&A, you can feel free to do that. I teach all of systematic theology. I teach all the, the different disciplines and doctrines. I'm not, of course, perfect, and I don't have God's mind, but I teach all of them, and so I'm, uh, so I'm, very, I'm very comfortable with you going different places if you want to do that. If you want to stay in the doctrine of Revelation, and you want to stay specifically in the area of canon, we can do that too, okay? But be thinking of those questions as we go. Uh, I, have, uh, I have clocks to guide me. So let's just jump right in. Uh, there's going to be a quiz afterwards. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I'm used to teaching this material and, and having it testable, so, uh, so it's weird not to, to have that in play. It's good, actually. Um, where does this word come from? Canon. That's the first thing we actually need to talk about, because it's not like there's a word in Scripture that says, this is what you shall call the rest of these books. It's, it's not there. Originally, um, if you trace it back, there's a word in the Hebrew, kaneh, Q-A-N-E-H, if we're transliterating, uh, that originally meant read, okay? Just stick with me. This was uh, transposed into the Greek and became uh, rule or standard. So the word canon from the Greek, K-A-N-O-N, acquired this meaning of rule or standard. So that's what we're talking about, in other words, when we talk about the biblical canon, the standard. What is the standard of the scripture? <clears throat> By the 4th century AD, Christians uh, found themselves using this word frequently. So it comes into usage basically in the 4th century. Now, I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to do extensive cultural engagement in the moments that follow, but some of you are familiar with Dan Brown's material, The Da Vinci Code, obviously, one of the, did you know that The Da Vinci Code is one of the best-selling books of all time, by the way? Mm -hmm. It sold tens and tens of millions of copies, which is quite scary, actually, for us. Not scary. We trust in God's providence, but, but very interesting because... Uh, because Brown has some very faulty ideas in the Da Vinci Code. One of his ideas, now I'm verging a little bit off of uh, scripture, or, or canon I should say, is, is the idea that the church in the fourth century decided um, that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, it, it, it passed this measure, adopted this confession, and with one fell swoop, Jesus was no longer seen as a human, he came to be seen as the son of God. This kind of attitude persists in Dan Brown. So we're not going to talk about Christology in Dan Brown. 
But this kind of idea is out there in the cultural water, that the church is, is the group that, because it wanted to defeat heretical groups, uh, ended up passing all these political measures, taking political actions in, in uh, synods and councils to politically bar heretical groups from being at the table, unfairly, is, is the thinking. I want to suggest to you, as we proceed in the material I'm going to lay out, that that is a very bad way to think about how the church came to understand, A, the scripture, and B, its doctrine. That's, that's not a true account. But we'll pick that up as we go. Okay, We'll develop that theme. Let's start with the Old Testament. How did the Old Testament come to be seen as a, as a canon, an early canon, of course, before the writing of the New Testament? Well, some have argued that the Old Testament was canonized in three stages. First, Torah, T-O-R-A-H. Second, prophets. Third, writings. There was a council, it's said, at the end of the first century A.D. in a place called Jamnia. J-A-M-N-I-A. And historically, some scholars thought that at the Council of Jamnia, at the end of the first century A.D., the canon of the Old Testament was set. So the 39 books of the Old Testament was at this council in Jamnia approved. This is what scholars in the 20th century thought. More recently, though, scholars have walked this idea back. Suffice it to say, long story short, we're not exactly sure when the early church uh, came to a concrete understanding of what the Old Testament canon was. We don't have, for example, a council at which that was definitively decided. The Council of Jamnia did not, as, as uh, historians have looked at things, seem to decide that definitively. But we do know this. Uh, biblical theologians today believe that the canon of the Old Testament was closed not later than the first century BC. So in other words, uh, as, uh, as that century was wearing on the early church, or, or I should say the pre-church uh, worshipers of God, it's a better term, had a set Old Testament canon. So that's, that's working first off of the Old Testament. There is evidence, for example, around 100 BC in an extra-biblical book called 1 Maccabees, M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E-S, that speaks of prophecy having ceased. Why is that significant for our discussion? This is an extra-biblical book, so let that be said. But this is important because if it's true, and I think it probably is, it shows that all the Old Testament books, A, had been written by this time, the, the first century B.C. We're kind of jumping back and forth of necessity here. Uh, and B, that the canon itself was likely a fixed reality as well. 
So that's what we're working with in terms of the Old Testament. We just want to lay track here. That's all we're doing to start. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of lay out a bunch of different matters, and then uh, I have five summary statements for you to help you just remember thoughts on the canon as we close. Now, we also need to point out that in the New Testament, there's abundant evidence that various authors and speakers and figures, including, most significantly, Jesus, realized that there were scriptures, and, and those scriptures constituted the Old Testament, what we know of as the Old Testament. So in other words, what am I saying? I'm saying that when the New Testament is written, there's this understanding that Christian scripture has in fact been written, the Old Testament. But there, there's also this sense that more Christian scripture is being written in this day. So there's a, there's a very interesting process happening in the New Testament that we know. Sometimes people will make it sound as if the Old Testament and the New Testament war against one another. But in reality, if you go to the scripture, uh, there's, no, there's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the canon. In other words, there, there, there does indeed seem to have been a fixed understanding of the Old Testament canon in the time of Jesus. Uh, there's no refutation of the Old Testament in the teachings of Jesus. That's, that's a very notable point. If you just That's an obvious point, but, if, but think about that. There's no point at which Jesus or his disciples say that something in the Old Testament is false. Now, interestingly, there are points, numerous points at which, for example, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul will amend the Old Testament, will tweak it. And that's a matter we can pick up in the Q&A. Why did that happen? I'll just give you a quick shorthand thing to think about. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Jesus comes as the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament. He's not doing violence. This is crucial to understand. He and Paul and others are not doing violence to the Old Testament. In other words, if they tweak this or if they sort of paste two verses together or if they have from the Old Testament or if they have allusions that are pulled from different places. Uh, as you see, for example, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John does this constantly. The book of Revelation is basically a pastiche or a quilt of the Old Testament. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that idea, but that's, that's basically true if, if you look into the, the allusions and the text itself. So, uh, so the New Testament authors are interpreting the Old Testament authoritatively, but that's different than treating the Old Testament as if it is wrong, invalidated, etc. So let that be said as well. Jesus picked up on the three traditional divisions of the Hebrew canon in Luke 24, 44. He spoke of the Old Testament scripture as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus, in other words, validated the Old Testament canon. Jesus and the New excuse me Jesus and the New Testament authors excuse me cite various parts of the Old Testament as divinely authoritative. In fact, there are 295 different quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Direct quotations. 
there are also over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. That's where a New Testament author is not quoting directly from an Old Testament book, but is using an idea, a concept, a theme, perhaps a word from the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament really is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. You see this all throughout the New Testament. Okay, now, with all this said, it's actually not the case that every document quoted or cited in the New Testament by the New Testament authors or speakers is biblical scripture. Did you know this? You have several examples of quotations from extra-biblical authors, pagan authors. So this is another matter we need to just quickly mention. For example, in Acts 17.28, there is a quotation from a pagan philosopher, Cleanthes, C-L-E-A-N-T-H-E-S. <coughs> Paul is citing pagan philosophical thought to make a point. He's, he, this is the Mars Hill discourse that some of you, I hope many of you are familiar with. But he's not citing Cleanthes as scripture, right? He does the same thing, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15.33. He cites the poet Menander, M-E-N-A-N-D-E-R. And there are others that we could mention. But that's an interesting point to note. Uh, these, these books are clearly treated as being outside of the canon worthy of engaging with, but not part of the canon. So there's definitely a canonical consciousness on the part of Paul, Jesus, and the New Testament authors. Some of you are familiar with the Apocrypha, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, Old Testament. There are no books of the Apocrypha that are treated as scripture by the New Testament author. So this is one of the sticky points, right? If you're in conversation with a Roman Catholic and they have certain books in their Bible that you don't have, and if you, if you haven't studied this very much, uh, you, you could get, get kind of hogtied, right? You could not know what to do, not know what to say. Uh, I don't know why these books would not be part of my Bible. That seems weird, frankly. Well, think of this. This is, this is a really important thing to think about. The New Testament nowhere quotes the Apocrypha. So that's very, that's very significant. <clears throat> the Jewish people, furthermore, did not regard the Apocrypha as God's word. In fact, the Apocrypha itself doesn't claim the same kind of authority as the Old Testament. And if you look at the actual teachings of the Apocrypha, if you look at Maccabees, for example, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, you will see that it is a different kind of book. It's, it speaks in biblical language, so to speak, but it, it does not sound like the rest of Scripture in many different places. 
as the Roman Catholic Church develops its structure in the first several centuries of church history, the Apocrypha is gradually accepted as Christian scripture. So these extra-biblical books become a part of the canon for the Roman Catholic Church, First and Second Maccabees, for example, as I said. But this was a very painful process in the development. Um, many early Christian figures had serious concerns about apocryphal books. Uh, numerous early church fathers did not think that the Apocrypha was part of Scripture. Nonetheless, uh, as with the entire hierarchy of Roman Catholicism, these books came to be accepted as, uh, as definitive. Okay, so we're, we're still tracking with Scripture itself. In a few minutes, I'll be moving off of this, and I'll talk about uh, how the canon itself was recognized. But just to, uh, just to um, say a, a few other points, um, the New Testament authors themselves uh, came to refer to other parts of the New Testament as Scripture. So this is another crucial development in the process of canonicity. So remember how earlier I was saying that uh, the New Testament authors believe that the Old Testament was Christian scripture? I made that basic point. Um, well, it's very interesting to see the New Testament authors considering other New Testament books scripture. You see this, for example, in 1 Timothy 5.18. You see it as well in 2 Peter 3.16. 1 Timothy 5.18, 2 Peter 3.16. I'm going to look at 2 Peter 3.16 just briefly if you want to look there with me. Picking up in verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. And this is, this is fascinating. I don't know if you've seen this before. But this is one New Testament author commenting on another. That's just cool. He writes the same way, Paul. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters, matters of salvation. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So if you've ever thought that about the Apostle Paul's writing, the Apostle Peter agrees with you. <laughs> uh, you have divine sanction, I guess you could say. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So there's, there's uh, that New Testament canonical consciousness. We have consciousness of the Old Testament as, as the Bible, as Christian scripture. And now we have, in this place, understanding of other New Testament letters as scripture, as they do the other scriptures. So these are, these are two crucial points to understand, just that if you're trying to understand how the Bible comes together and why you should think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are inspired by God when the world is filled with people who don't think that, the Bible itself treats both testaments as God's word. That is, a, that is a tremendous foundation for confidence. In other words, if we didn't have this kind of testimony, 
I don't want to say that we wouldn't have any foundation, but we wouldn't have nearly as strong a foundation as we do. I trust that that makes sense. Now, I want to also say that part of what, part of what the New Testament authors realize <coughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that the New Testament centers in Jesus Christ. He's the center of the canon. That's important because biblical books, New Testament books, are therefore seen as those that are necessarily unfolding the mystery of Jesus Christ. That is a crucial part of understanding why different books are in the New Testament then, and others are not. Because those that came to be the New Testament canon were those that the church, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognized as pointing up Jesus Christ, as centering in Jesus Christ. So the sun is the apex of the New Testament canon. <clears throat> now, some have said that the church took a long time to recognize the New Testament canon. This is a, a point, in fact, that non-Christians, that those who are attacking the Bible will make. The church took forever to recognize the New Testament canon. Why is that significant? That's significant because it makes the church seem as if it was really hard to figure out which books were Christian scripture, which makes it seem like the process of canonization was arbitrary. You see the stakes? In actual fact, it was not arbitrary. It didn't take the church a long time to recognize the New Testament canon. Here's what it did take the church a while to do. To draw up an official list of those books that are the New Testament. Frankly, it did take a little while for that to happen. And interestingly, what ultimately prompted it was the presence of heretical groups in early church history. Now, that's another matter we can pick up in Q&A. Why in God's providence would it be that heretical groups would be the impetus to the church drawing up a canon. In other words, why wouldn't the church in, I don't know, AD 115 just sit down and say, here's all our books, let's have a council, let's approve it. I, I don't know. That's not how it happened in God's providence. This is true, by the way, of Christian theology more broadly. If you're familiar at all with the ecumenical councils that produced the early confessions of church history, these councils were called in response to heresy. That's why we got the doctrine we got in the first four ecumenical councils, because of heretical groups. The church responded. So in God's wise providence and somewhat mysterious providence, it is the case that heresy has often been used to define, to formalize, we should say, not to create, if you don't get any other idea in this whole session, get that. Not to create orthodoxy, but to recognize it. Heresy has been used by God to, to formalize orthodoxy <coughs> in order that heresy would be out of bounds. So uh, what's, the, what's the proof of this idea? Well, the New Testament books were circulating among the church throughout the first century. They were circulating, in other words, as definitive Christian scripture throughout the first century, right? Th that's what we see in Peter. You see what I'm saying? That's why Peter can say, you're reading Paul's writings, some, some places they're hard to understand, because Paul's letters 
his 13 letters are being passed around. Why? Because they're Christian scripture. Because the Holy Spirit is, is enabling the church to see that Paul is writing the Bible, the New Testament. The earliest Christian list of the Old Testament books was written in 170, A.D. 170. Melito, M-E-L-I-T-O, Bishop of Sardis, S-A-R-D-I-S. When you're teaching history, it feels like half the time you're just spelling words. <laughs> Melito of Sardis, in 170, A.D. 170, wrote his list. It was Eusebius, in the early 4th century, who gives us uh, a list of the New Testament books as well. Now, tradition has held, scholars basically agree, evangelical scholars basically agree, that the decisive period in the, in the recognition of the New Testament canon was somewhere between A.D. 140 to 200, somewhere in these six decades, the early church uh, came to a definitive understanding of which books were part of the New Testament and which were not. Why did it come to this understanding in this century? Because of what I was just saying. Uh, heresies arose, including Marcionism and a movement called Montanism, M-O-N-T-A-N-I-S-M, and these heretical groups pushed the church to very carefully define the canon. Why? Because these heretical groups claimed to have their own canon. They had their own canon. So the church had to develop, or had to, excuse me, put down on paper the true canon. Marcion, for example, believed that the God of the Old Testament was an ogre. He believed that the Old Testament was inferior to the New Testament. Because the God of the Old Testament is a warrior and a killer. And the God of the New Testament is a God of peace and love. And there's definitely a form of neo-Marcionism today. Uh, people wouldn't necessarily know that. Um, but that's, that's an idea that got in the water way back then that is still in the water. That if you go to the Old Testament, God is punitive. If you go to the New Testament, God is love. Uh, which reminds us that people have clearly missed many of the sayings of Jesus, uh, chiefly that he will, he will come back uh, to judge the earth. Not exactly a statement that indicates a desire to cuddle. <laughs> so these are, the, these are pressures from heretical movements that the early church faces, and it causes the early church, as I've said, to make public, formal decisions about the canon. We have a fragment, in fact, a fragment, by the end of the second century AD. It's called the Muratorian Fragment. Okay? Here we go. Let's spell it. M-U-R-A-T-O-R-I-A-N. The fragment in question is the earliest list we have of the New Testament canon end of the second century. I know I'm throwing a lot of dates at you, but hey, we talked about 
theology and loving God with your mind this morning, and we're putting it into practice. You're thinking you could have been watching football right now, but this is this is this is good stuff, I think. If you just if you just keep pushing, we're almost we're almost at the end of my at the end of my material. This is a fragmentary list. I called it a fragment, so hence it's fragmentary. Uh, Matthew and Mark, for example, do not appear on it. Hmm. Uh oh. Does that mean that Matthew and Mark were not believed to be part of the New Testament canon in the second century, as late as? Almost the dawn of the third century? No, it doesn't. Breathe easy. They are, uh, Luke and John are referred to as the third and fourth gospels, which is very interesting. It shows you. Think, just think about that. You know that there are four gospels in the New Testament, right? You take that for granted. You, you've been working with that, many of you, some of you for years. But that is a belief that has now officially been held for almost two millennia. That's just. That's a powerful thing to realize. There were Christians in places very different from us, looking different from us, who believed exactly what we believe two millennia ago. That's very encouraging. Luke, in this fragment, is recognized as the author of Acts. Some of you may not be familiar with this idea. If you take classes on Luke or Acts in seminary or college, they will often be put together because it is believed that, that Luke is indeed the author of Acts because of the Muratorian fragment. There are 13 letters in this fragment attributed to Paul, so exactly what, what we believe today, um, and, and uh, much of the rest of the New Testament canon is here. Interestingly, there are a couple of books that the fragment treats as maybe scripture that we do not. So this isn't a point of interest. There's a text called the Shepherd of Hermas, H-E-R-M-A-S. And it seems, this is very interesting, it seems that the early church wasn't necessarily clear on whether the Shepherd of Hermas was a biblical book. Why can I say that? Because it was said that the early church should read it in private but it should not be read publicly by the church. Very interesting. So they're not including it as a New Testament book, but they are expressing a lack of clarity over whether it is. And some, it appears, believe that another book called The Wisdom of Solomon was a canonical book. These are the only two books in the Muratorian fragment at the end of the second century uh, that are extra-biblical that the church really was wrestling with, though. So there again, uh, know that there's tremendous ground for confidence even in that. I don't, know if, I don't know if you're thinking of it in those terms. In other words, we are trained by our secular culture, uh, including people like Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you've seen that name, E-H-R-M-A-N, scholar at the University of North Carolina, who professed to be an evangelical uh, much younger, went to Moody and Wheaton, and then turned and has made a career of attacking the Bible and trying as hard as he can to undermine evangelical confidence in Scripture. My, my point is this. A figure like Ehrman will take any point of, of lack of clarity that he can find in, in evangelical history and spin it as, see, <laughs> the church was just awash in confusion. The canon wasn't fixed. 
I am here to report that is not an accurate way to read that. Just about all the books in the Muratorian fragment considered to be scripture, we consider to be scripture. There just was some, it took some time, frankly. I mean, we need to be, we need to be gracious to the early church. It took time for them to figure out exactly which books were and which books weren't canonical. But they did. They did. So, so I, I hope I'm just, I hope I'm giving you some reasons, uh, some presuppositions maybe, uh, by which you can, you can think through a figure like Ehrman or others who are out there who try to attack your confidence in the Bible. There's abundant reason here for confidence. Okay, rounding the corner uh, to a close. There is a, there is a list of fully canonical books this, uh, that, that appears in Athanasius's letter, a letter of the theologian Athanasius in 367. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. In this letter, all 27 books of the New Testament are called canonical. Thirty years later, the Council of Carthage lists all 27 as the New Testament canon. Now, remember, this does not mean that Athanasius and the Council of Carthage in 397 decided that these books were the Bible, were the New Testament canon. The, the church had already been working on this assumption for decades and probably hundreds of years. But in God's providence, which, which I'm saying not as a crutch, but as a dependence on the, the primary driver of this entire process, uh, it took the church some time to put this down on paper. It is true, by the way, that Jude, Second Peter, and Revelation were in were subjects of debate. Some in the early church wondered if these books were in fact part of the New Testament canon. Martin Luther, many years later, furthermore, will call the epistle of James a letter of straw. And he will exclude it originally from his his translation of the New Testament. <clears throat> Martin Luther was not a shy flower, was he? Uh, he did not struggle with boldness. He struggled the opposite way. Interestingly, when Luther uh, made revisions to his New Testament, for those of you who like Luther, I, I love Luther, actually. <laughs> he he re-included James in, uh, in his New Testament, as well he should have. Uh, but I, I just I point that out to just for interest. Now, here we come to one of our final matters and an important one. It is tricky to figure out a, an exact system by which the early church decided which books were in the canon. Okay? Forty years ago, if you had gone to an evangelical seminary, you would have learned that there were six criteria which the, which the church used to test whether or not 
a book or a letter was part of the Bible, part of the New Testament in particular, okay? You would have learned these six things. Let's get them down on paper, okay? Uh, I'm going to say apostleship. Yes? Who used this at what point? Well, uh, scholars a generation ago would have said that this is what the early church used. This is what the Christians in the first several centuries used to determine which of these books that we've been talking about were, were scripture, which weren't. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is, in other words, this six-fold criteria was the criteria that the, the whole church in many different places over several centuries used. And here they are. Apostleship. This means, was the book written by an apostle? So that's the first test. If it's not written by an apostle, so, so said the scholars of 40 years ago, it was out. Okay. Second criteria, antiquity. If a document was not from the apostolic age, the first century, it was out. Thirdly, orthodoxy. Was the book doctrinally correct? Did it teach that uh, angels could perform a salvific work? If it did, that's a problem. It's not in accord with the rest of Scripture. Fourth, Catholicity. Catholicity. Was the book universally accepted by the church? Catholic. Little c. Oh, for those of you scoring at home. And then lection is the fifth. Lection. L-E-C-T-I-O-N. Was the book widely read and used in church services? Sixth, and finally, inspiration. Was the book inspired? Okay, let's evaluate this criteria. On the face of it, it seems pretty helpful. And I do think that this criteria actually is helpful. But I don't think it's definitive as earlier generations thought. There's a theologian named Richard Gaffin, G-A-F-F-I-N, who has written extensively on this. And Gaffin makes several points. Here we go. If you want, if, if you require a, a New Testament book to be written by an apostle, you have problems with a number of books, don't you? We don't know who wrote Hebrews. I was quoting it today in, in in church this morning, right? And I said, the author. I don't know who wrote it. We don't know, uh, or excuse me, uh, Luke was not an apostle, furthermore. We have no evidence that Luke was an apostle. But Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So, do you see what I'm saying? If apostleship is one of your criteria, you just cut out two of the books. <clears throat> So it would seem that that can't be a hard and fast uh, factor in determining whether a book is part of the canon. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul makes reference to an earlier letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. Did you know this? Did you know that 1 and 2 Corinthians are really 2 and 4 Corinthians? Basically, you see what I'm saying? There's a first and a third letter that are not part of our Bible. 
Now, nothing, nothing went wrong. I'm not here to crash your faith, okay? I don't mean that there should have been first and third Corinthians. I'm meaning this only chronologically, my, my first and third language, second and fourth language. In other words, Paul wrote letters that weren't scriptural. That's the point I'm making. Do you see this? In other words, any letter an apostle wrote was not necessarily uh, canonical. Furthermore, this is kind of a, just a, a different way to state that point, just because an apostle wrote in the age of apostolicity does not mean that a letter or a book is canonical either. Do you see this point? Does this make sense? Okay, just want to be clear. The okay. same... I have a question. Yes, yes. You got it. Um, just down that same rabbit trail would be, if a letter was written by an apostle, then at, at whose judgment would it be to be included or not to be included is the first question. Second is, could it be because the possibility of the central focus of that letter is not Christ? Can you pause Save on that? I am just about done, and that we are, we are going to go there. It's a great question. Can we? I'm almost done. And then raise your hand again, okay? Please. Um, let me. Just, I, I have literally just a few more lines. There's another uh, letter that Paul wrote that is referenced in Colossians 4:16. Okay. This is really interesting stuff. I think. It was. It was a letter to the Laodiceans. L A O. D-I-C-E-A-N-S, okay? Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. It was apostolic and even, it seems, inspired. Apostolic and inspired. And yet it was not part of the New Testament canon. So in other words, that, that puts into some question our sixth criteria, criterion, right? Inspiration. Paul was inspired, it appears, from, from what he says in Colossians 4 to write this letter, and yet it's not part of the canon. So just because a letter is inspired does not necessarily mean that it should be part of the canon. <clears throat> Furthermore, the church did allow the reading of this earlier letter, or earlier uh, book I mentioned, The Shepherd of Hermas. This was actually read as if we read it, we would have read it in church today. The Shepherd of Hermas was read in weekly worship by some churches. So our, our fifth criteria, criterion, I keep doing this, lection does not hold either. And, and let me just quickly say this. I don't mean that these criteria have no bearing on the formation of the canon. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying something pretty nuanced. I'm saying that these six criteria do not, do not of themselves establish which books are part of the canon. So I think they're useful in understanding what's part of the canon, but I do not think that they are definitive. And I hope that makes sense as well. I am now going to conclude my stuff with five quick points. First, canonization is a divine process. The way we got our Bible is no less super, was no less superintended by God than the salvation of a sinner. 
Why am I saying this? Why is this significant? Because one of the things we most want as believers when we're handling objections, especially from people who are really thoughtful unbelievers and who have read Dan Brown or other people who are questioning the canon, questioning the center of our faith, the scripture, we want the kind of criteria that I just mentioned. We want to say, here are the six criteria that the early church used to determine the canon. See? It's rational, it's reasonable, it makes sense. This is why I was laboring this point just now. Because I think those criteria are helpful, but they're not definitive. Why? Because ultimately, the formation of the canon is a divine process. It was superintended by the Spirit of God. This is, this is what I have to, to tell you. It was superintended by the Spirit of God. Clearly, something like apostleship hugely matters. Most of the books in the New Testament are written by apostles. That's clearly a factor. Clearly, inspiration is necessary for all the books in the New Testament canon, right? But inspiration alone, apostleship alone, can't account for which books are in the New Testament canon. In other words, the matter, the doctrine of, of the canon of Scripture requires faith. You see this? It requires faith just as the rest of Christianity requires faith. We can say helpful things. That's why, we're, that's why you're sitting here. That's why I'm speaking. We're trying to be helpful. We're trying to think through this well. But ultimately, God had to do this. And that's not, but let, let's be clear here. That's not a weakness. It, it, uh, an unbeliever, an ermine, who I was mentioning earlier, Bart Ehrman, he'll make it sound as if that's a weakness for you. That the God you worship had to superintend this process so you don't have some extra biblical standard that shows how the canon was assembled. <clears throat> that's not a weakness. Ultimately, that's, that's a strength. Because God, God is the author of Scripture. He was the author of scripture in the writing of scripture, the actual pen to paper, and he is the author of scripture ultimately of the assembling of the canon. Secondly, the church recognized the canon, it didn't create it. I've already said that, I won't belabor that. The church recognized the canon, it did not create it. Simple point, essential point. Third, the canon is final. The canon is the canon. Sounds obvious, right? Actually pretty important. One of the most common moves, uh, those who are non-evangelicals will make in attacking biblical doctrine and arguing that Paul was wrong, <coughs> for example. One of the, the most common moves will be that there was a text behind 1 Corinthians. Uh, that, that was used for the writing of 1 Corinthians. There's a text behind Galatians. The, the key thing for us to focus on as believers is the text we have. So note that very carefully. You, you may not have a lot of dogs in that fight, but I assure you, if you get into New Testament scholarship, this is a constant attack on Scripture. There's all these texts that were used to form the, the canon, and those texts were faulty, so we can't trust the canon, the texts we have. And I want to say the opposite to you. We can trust the scripture. We have to trust the scripture. If we can't trust it, we have, we have no faith, ultimately. So you're not looking, don't go hunting for 
the proto-Gnostic letter uh, that inspired this comments of Paul. Maybe it was there. Maybe it wasn't. That's not ultimately what we deal with. Fourth, there's a remarkable harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament, also a matter I've covered. 300 quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Why, why am I belaboring that? It shows a beautiful symmetry between the two Testaments that you should not miss. You should know that. And fifth, the point we mentioned um, is important. There are documents, there are New Testament documents that are referred to as Scripture. So there is, in other words, this understanding both of the Old Testament as Scripture and the New Testament. Thank you for your attention. I'm glad to answer questions and we can go for however long we need to.